Hello everybody, my name is Luke Marshall and you are listening to Things Observed and today we are talking about the World Anti-Communist League and if you, like myself, which most of you guys probably are, veterans of the conspiracy realm or the deep state machinations, parapolitics, whatever it is that you want to refer to it as, you're going to have heard of all kinds of different groups and secret societies and think tanks. You know, we have the classic groups such as the Freemasons or the almost mythical Illuminati. We have more recent groups like with 2001, we have the Project for a New American Century, you know, in relation to the 9-11 attacks and that factors into most people's theories when it comes into 9-11, when it comes into the conspiracy realm. As of more recent with all the COVID mandates and all this great reset talk, we have the World Economic Forum. We have, you know, all kinds of groups that are mentioned. Think tanks like the Council on Foreign Relations. We have secret societies operating out of universities like Skull and Bones, where we find members of the Bush family. There's all these different think tanks, secret societies, policy groups, and what have you that are constantly being talked about when it comes to the realm of conspiracies. But today we're going to be talking about a group that I feel is a little bit lesser known and not quite so many people are talking about, and that is the World Anti-Communist League. And I think that it has a lot of things to inform us about, and it's a very instructive thing to talk about. And this group would essentially be composed of two groups that would essentially meld together and become one. That's the Anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations, or the ABN, and the Asian People's Anti-Communist League. And these two groups would kind of come together in the, you know, post-World War II environment and essentially create an international fascist network where you kind of have the old guard fascists who are now communicating with the new generation of fascists. And we're going to talk about the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations. We're going to talk about the Asian People's Anti-Communist League. And we're going to go over some of the characters that would end up becoming big members in the World Anti-Communist League. And this will start off, start us off in our series, which I'm going to try and get a special guest at some point to talk about it. So if I'm successful, that will happen. But this is essentially going to be kind of an introductory introduction into the World Anti-Communist League. We're basically just going to set up the basics of the group and discuss some of the members and what we can learn about the group about some of these members because even though we're only going to be covering a handful today it is a group that you know all the other members are essentially going to be like this and so uh, in large part today we're going to be drawing our sources from inside the league which inside the league is a good book I, rem I recommend it um, the shocking expose of how terrorist Nazis and Latin American death squads have infiltrated the World Anti-Communist League. And that is by Scott Anderson and John Lee Anderson. And we're also going to be referring to a good series of blogs, which I am going to put that down 
in the description below. And it's written by Recluse on the Vicep blog. And that is the first article in the entry is called Secret Societies, Narco-Terrorism, International Fascism, and the World Anti-Communist League, Part 1. And we're also going to use a number of other resources, but those will also be included in the notes for the show in the description on whatever podcasting platform it is that you are listening to this off of. So, and I, I will let you know as we go through what book it is that I'm referring to or where it is that I got the information from that I am talking about. But anyways, let's just go ahead and get into today's subject, the World Anti-Communist League. And I'm going to start by reading a couple of quotes from Inside the League. And so the first one says, The World Anti-Communist League was founded in 1966 in South Korea and held its first conference in 1967. Its stated goal were ambitious. What does the WACL seek to accomplish? First, through all forms of mass media and personal contacts, to urge all freedom-loving peoples of the world to defeat and frustrate communist aggression and subversive activities. Second, to aid liberation movements of captive nations under communist rule. Third, to develop political and psychological warfare methods to expose and counteract communism. Fourth, to promote the exchange of cultural and informational material among freedom-loving people to neutralize communist strategy and tactics. And fifth, to train anti-communist leaders to build a better world imbued with freedom and to overcome the communist menace. And so these are kind of the stated aims of the World Anti-Communist League. And the way that they would go about achieving these stated aims is in large part through what is called unconventional warfare, which a member of the League described as, in addition to terrorism, subversion, and guerrilla warfare, such covert and non-military activities as sabotage, economic warfare, support to resistance groups, black and gray psychological operations, disinformation activities, and political warfare. So already through this, we're kind of beginning to get a little bit of a taste of what it is that the World Anti-Communist League is attempting to create. Essentially, a unified global front against communism or leftism, these different ideological camps that they would deem as subversive and which pose a threat to their, you know, right-wing fascist goals. And this kind of unified front was actually first um, propounded by Hitler in his anti-Comintern policy. And it is largely this unconventional warfare, which, you know, we mentioned in the last quote, you know, terrorism, subversion, propaganda, psychological warfare, disinformation. And it is largely through these means that they are choosing to wage this global front against communism. And I will read yet another quote from Inside the League. And it says, when most people think of Nazis, two images are evoked, 
aging war criminals, the Joseph Mengele's and Klaus Barbies living in frightened obscurity somewhere in South America, or else of disenchanted youths who in brown shirts and jackboots vandalized synagogues and marched through city streets. But there is a third type of Nazi who is far more powerful, public, and dangerous than the other two. These are the Croatians, Slavics, Ukrainians, Latvians, who carried out the German-dictated massacres, who never faced a Nuremberg, and who joined the World Anti-Communist League. The participation of these Eastern Europeans in the Holocaust remains one of the least told stories in modern history. The reason is simple. Many of them were recruited by American and British intelligence, brought into the United States and Canada, allowed to rise to prominent positions in their immigrant communities, and ultimately to revise history. Today, their rhetoric is different. They no longer talk about the communist Jewish Freemason conspiracy, for now they have allies who need them to be more discreet than that. And so, now, let's go into who some of these people that are being, you know, referenced in the kind of introduction to Inside the League are and discuss a little bit about how they end up factoring into the World Anti-Communist League. And so we're going to be talking about Nazis, we're going to be talking about the Iron Guard, the Ustasha, and we're going to be talking about the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations and how these groups end up coming to factor in to the World Anti-Communist Leagues. So one of the authors of this book would actually go to interview a man named Janos in his home in Philadelphia, and it's kind of a disturbing little bit in this book because he's you know living in philadelphia in this quaint little home and he's very affectionate with his wife who is there and they keep off offering the author you know sandwiches and biscuits that she's making and they're all lovey-dovey with one another and this guy was a bad hombre to say the least you know he was involved with this fascist movement that was going on through the World Anti-Communist League, and the author begins to ask him about a host of different characters. And so I'm going to read a little portion that's going to introduce this host of characters who he was familiar with, and then we're going to talk about who they are, and we're going to learn that they are indeed some bad hombres. And so this conversation in the book goes... Shirila Sientu, very strong, big, powerful arms, short, doesn't speak English very much. Then the author asked, Yaroslav Stetsko. Stetsko, Yanis sat back, cocked his head, and looked imperious. Aloof, not arrogant, but aloof. He always had this look about him. He always looks angry. And Stepan Heifer, Ostepan, the old man cried, leaping to his feet. He puffed out his chest, put his hands on his hips, and strutted about the small room. This is how Stepan walked, and when he spoke he always shouted and waved his hands, very intense, very emotional. When the author was leaving, Janos resumed his vigil on the doorstep, waving and watching after the car until it disappeared from sight. There was no way one could dislike Janos. His solicitude and warmth, the teenage adoration he showed towards his wife, all gave one a feeling of affection for the old man which was disquieting, because Janos was a Nazi war criminal. The friends he had caricatured in his Chester living room were also war criminals. 
So let's begin our dive into some of these not so nice, some of these not so cool dudes. And let's start with the first one that was mentioned by Janos, that being Shirelia Cintu. And just for reference, for anybody who is, you know, Eastern European, who knows German or Romanian or any of these things, I'm sure that I'm butchering a lot of these names, butchering a lot of these words. So my apologies on the Things Observed podcast. We have a policy to where if we do not respect the person, we do not make an effort to pronounce his name or where he comes from correctly. And that is not as much an ideological thing as much as it is that I am too lazy. And it sounds like a good excuse. But anyways, things have been crazy and I haven't had time to figure out the pronunciation of everything anyways. I just got done moving to let you know a little bit about what's going on in my life. I am now in my new studio, kind of like a Joe Rogan type setup. And I'm, you know, very soon I'm going to start having, you know, uh, heads of, you know, officials in here talking in person. Uh, you know, I'm getting myself a, a cameraman. We're going to start having famous musicians, actors, you name it. Things observed is on the up and up. So I had to make that move. But uh, actually, the reality is that I'm just in a bedroom right now and I've actually got my laptop balanced on a stack of pillows and I'm holding my microphone so hopefully everything sounds okay it's a snowy day where I'm at hope everybody is having a good winter and is staying warm out there but anyway so Chirilla Cientu and uh, Cientu would eventually find refuge in Canada and he would spend his retired days in the comfort of his apartment in Windsor. But life hadn't always been so pedestrian for Cientu, one could say. He used to belong to what was known as the Legion of the Archangel Michael, which is a pretty cool name, I must say. But despite the cool name, the group was not so cool. And this group was often referred to also as the Iron Guard. So maybe you guys know it by the Iron Guard. So whichever way you prefer to refer to it, the Legion of the Archangel Michael or the Iron Guard. But it was founded in 1927 in the years following the uh, fa- in the years following its founding, this fascist group would leave a wake of devastation behind, to say the least. And even after its ascent to power, the group would live on what the authors of Inside the League refer to as an elusive network amongst Romanian immigrants, often operating through the Romanian Orthodox Church, through different parishes and stuff, which is someone who attends Orthodox Church. Very frustrating. I have only to say to them, knock it off, guys. Really not cool. Um, but hey, everybody's going to have to answer to the big man someday. But anyways, um, these groups, you know, they would operate as a network in exile, and it would be ran from a well-guarded building in Madrid, and one of its North American lieutenants was none other than Siuntu. So, you know, we have this fascist Romanian group, who's kind of operating in exile afterwards. And this is what CN2 would do. But as we will learn, he uh, didn't just jump on the bandwagon after they were in exile. 
he was in the thick of it but he held an esteemed position in the iron guard and he was a, the chief spokesman for the detroit windsor area which actually at the time had the largest concentration of romanian exiles in north america so at least during the time of its exile this would be the place to be you know and so it was his esteemed position in the iron guard that the authors of inside the league say explained his prominent position in the world anti-communist league as well and in 1981 this was when the Romanian delegation at the annual meeting in Taiwan um, would, you know, kind of come about, um, and he would be there. And in addition, he would also attend WACL league meetings in Washington and Luxembourg, you know, so he was definitely involved with the group. And this is going to be something that we're going to see repeat time and time again with the World Anti-Communist League is that the people who are involved with the league they aren't just you know fascist in name only but they were involved with some of the worst fascist movements in history that would leave millions dead and so while many would not be so proud to hold a position amongst the ilk of the iron guard this was not the case for chirilla a deep Detroit reporter who visited his home would describe what his abode would look like so you know keep in mind that this guy is living in an apartment like a normal dude not in a jail cell or prison cell i should say the way he should be but let's hear from this detroit reporter what it is that his home would look like the walls of the small flat are festooned with flags and tapestries the romanian national flag red yellow and blue flies atop his television set but his flag has, stitched at its center, three horizontal and three vertical intersecting lines, the symbol of the Iron Guard. The same symbol appears on wall tapestries and small embroidered doilies, doilies, books. Many with the Iron Guard cross on their bindings are everywhere. A green military-style shirt hangs from the back of a chair. And so you can actually, if you, you know happen to be so unlucky as to stumble upon some of the uh, fascist guys on Twitter or online or, you know, is 4chan even still existing? I think it turned into 8chan or whatever. Anyways, um, you will still see people using this kind of like, it's not a hashtag exactly, but it's a similar thing. You still see people who use this, uh, you know, logo or whatever it is that you'd like to call it it's still out there but anyways let's figure out a little bit about the legion of the archangel michael the iron guard well the group was founded by a man who was by many accounts charismatic and he was also a fascist as well the two are not always mutually exclusive and the guy's name was Cornelius zelia cadrino and in 1927, you know, he would establish the group and the legionary movement. And even in the days of its exile, they would kind of always, man, I'm sounding like I'm drunk. They would always center their activity around what has been described as essentially the idol worship of this Cornelius guy. And this is, you know, kind of ironic because for a group which, you know, likes to use Romanian orthodoxy as a large part of its aesthetic, 
you know, it's a, you know, kind of a, seems a bit disingenuous, their beliefs in it, when you take into account, you know, they're kind of like idol worship of this guy, plus, you know, they're not a group to turn the other cheek or to love their neighbor as themselves or anything like that either. But, you know, it kind of seems like they're probably using orthodoxy, Romanian orthodoxy, to uh, stoke national sentiment for their cynical fascistic ends. But, of course, this isn't the only irony in relation to their supposedly Christian underpinning, you know. I mean, aside from the murder, torture, rape, terrorism, and mayhem... Uh, I mean, there's other smaller things like, you know, Kadrinu, uh, he was a womanizer and he was known to sleep around with his followers and stuff. So it seems like they were less concerned with imitating Christ and more concerned with, you know, expelling Romania of Jews and communists and any other group that they deemed unfit for their country. And Cornelia literally came onto the scene on the back of a white horse with a revolver in one hand and a crucifix in the other, which sounds super sick, until you realize that he galloped onto the public scene in order to purge Romania of Jews and communists by any means necessary. And their violence wasn't always restricted to Jews and leftists who they viewed to be subverting Romania, but this would also often extend to, you know, members of the guard when they ended up not falling in line with the party line. And one of these guys was a guy by the name of Mikhail Stiliscu, who tried to split from the gang after becoming disillusioned with Corneliu, and he would end up finding himself being shot 120 times and then butchered with a hatchet in a hospital while he was recovering from an appendectomy. So I guess you could say that it wasn't the uh, most fair fight, but hey, do fascist things meet a fascist end? But Kadrina was assassinated in 1938, and this is when the leadership of the group would pass to lieutenants like Horia Sima and Viril Trifa, or Trifa, who would flee to Nazi Germany for safety, um, you know, when rubber hit the road. So others like Chirila Sientu would remain in Romania. And so, you know, we have these people who are members of the Guard who are going to kind of escape off to Nazi Germany, but we have others who are remaining in Romania, and they are forming cells, and they are waiting for their chance to exact revenge for the assassination of their idol, you know, Kadrinu, and, you know, the death cult would get the chance when, 10 months later, the group would use machine guns to mow down the prime minister of Romania as his limousine pulled up to a plaza in Bucharest. And so the Nazis would use the Iron Guards as, you know, a means of creating, uh, what would you call it, a strife in between King Carroll and the Iron Guard members in Germany. And King Carroll would eventually abdicate the throne, and he would make a run for the border. And while he escaped, the murderous Iron Guard and some of his would get some of his boys and... Uh, you know, King Carroll would be fine, but his boys were not so lucky. And so the Romanian government would end up in the power of two men. One was the Iron Guard member Horia Sima, who we mentioned just a second ago, and the other was a non-guardist, a guy by the name of Jan Antonescu. 
and both of them were trying to win the favor of the Nazis, essentially, um, which, why would you do that, guys? But anyways, members of the Iron Guard would be placed throughout the government, and many would oversee the Romanizing of the population, and I say Romanizing in, you know, quotations, but in less pretty and more accurate terms, the Romanization of the population would mean the extermination and subjugation of the Jewish population. So in the bloody, bloody prelude to the Iron Guard revolution to come, on November 26, 1940, members of the Legion would storm the prison where 64 of King Carroll's government ministers were being held and they would hack them to pieces with picks, shovels, and axes after screaming, For the Guard! So, the following day, the Romanian historian and former Prime Minister Nicolae Iorga would have his beard ripped from his face and be castrated by members of the Guard. And this is only one of more than 300 people to suffer at the hands of the Legionary Movement following the three days after this whole prison incident. So, we are beginning to see that this Iron Guard revolution is on the horizon. Things are heating up. But it was not yet to come. But then, on January 21st of 1941, the 300 members of the Guard would descend upon the police station in uh, the capital and take control of it and dispose of any of the loyalists there. And they would deal with the enemies in the basement of the building. And, you know, I don't think that they were just tickling them and things like that. I think it was a little bit more brutal and among those at the prefecture was Chirilla Cintu and so once again this is where this guy who would end up being involved with the World Anti-Communist League would come into our story and he would deny any involvement in the basement barbarism that was to commence but now let's turn to Inside the League once again to get an idea of what it is that exactly followed and so, you know, we have seen to saying that he would not be um, a partaker in any of this, but it is kind of hard to believe him at his word, given his, you know, connections and his outlook on the world. But anyhow, Inside the League says, In the next 36 hours, they raised eight synagogues, destroyed the Jewish ghetto in Bucharest, and murdered over 400 Romanians with gasoline, axes, knives, meat hooks, and shovels. A mob of several hundred attacked the Sephardic temple. American correspondent Lee White reported at the time, smashing its windows with stones and battering down its doors with links of timber, all its objects of ritual, prayer books, shawls, talmuds, torahs, altar benches, and tapestries were carried outside and piled in a heap which was soaked with gasoline and set afire. A number of Jewish pedestrians were herded together and forced to dance in a circle around the bonfire. When they dropped in exhaustion, they were doused with gasoline and burned alive. Jewish prisoners were taken by the Iron Guard to the municipal slaughterhouse. There, White wrote, in a fiendish parody of kosher methods of butchering, they hung many of the Jews on meat hooks and slit their throats. Others they forced to kneel at chopping blocks while the Iron Guardists beheaded them with cleavers. And, I mean, this is just only to briefly go over some of the horror. I mean, at the slaughterhouse incident, incident, 
there was said to be a girl of only five years old who was strung up by the feet like a calf. I mean, just, you know, the worst stuff that you can possibly imagine. And this is one of the groups from which the World Anti-Communist League would gain membership. And so this rebellion would not gain the support of the Germans, <laughs> which is really saying something. And by the 23rd, it was put down. And in the wake of the mass murder lied the, you know, mutilated corpses of the people who the Guard deemed as unworthy of life. And top members of the Guard, such as Haria Sima, would be taken by Nazi SS commander in Romania across the border in SS uniform. So, you know, we have the Nazis who were taking them away from the scene to where that way they don't have to be held accountable to anything for anything potentially and only the most detestable of the iron guard would face any kind of repercussions and even at that most of them would face you know very lenient punishment a slap on the wrist kind of the old jeffrey epstein work release kind of punishment uh you know the punishment of like if you know I don't know, Hitler were to stub his toe, that kind of level of punishment. Anyhow, I'll quit trying to be a funny guy because it's not even working for me right now. But one of these guys who would be found guilty would actually be seen to, and he would be found guilty of rebellion and given a five-year prison sentence, which he would not serve any of. But instead, he would climb aboard a jeep and be taken by two SS men to Bulgaria. And then Sientu would go on to join Iron Guardists who were fighting Soviets on the Eastern Front during World War II. And eventually, he would make his way to Canada and spend his retirement from the comfort of his apartment. Not really the uh, way it should have panned out for Sientu. And that is kind of how it would end up panning out for a lot of these fascists, you know, uh, Nazis and Nazi collaborators and stuff. And this is not the only Nazi collaborator who we are going to discuss in relation to the World Anti-Communist League. So let's move on to the next one, and that is Yaroslav Stetsko, who was chairman of the Anti-Bolshevik Bloc of Nations and an important member of the World Anti-Communist League. And he would even work with the League before it was officially founded in 1966. And so I'm going to, again, real quickly read from Inside the League. In Journeys to Taiwan in 1956, 57, 61, and 64, and at many Asian People's Anti-Communist League conferences, which was the precursor to the World League, Stetsko pursued his long interest in Taiwan and its Generalissimo, Chiang Kai-shek. Stetsko found a reflection of his own beliefs in the ferocious anti-communist stance of the Taiwanese government and its willingness to combat communism by any means necessary. In 1958, he took part in the preparatory conference of the World Anti-Communist League in Mexico City and was one of the most responsible for its ultimate creation. In 1970, he was elected to the executive board, the, elite's elite, the league's elite governing body so who was this Stetsko guy and we, you know we're going to get into Chiang Kai-shek and you know some of the other people who we have mentioned so far 
but let's go ahead and dive into Stesco, someone who's of interest to us, especially in today's climate when we have what's going on in the Ukraine. We have, you know, the Atsov Battalion Nazis over there and stuff. And so Stetsko's actually a figure who is going to give us an idea about, you know, how it is that some of these Nazi ideas came into the Ukraine and took quite the foothold that they did. And so while Stetsko might seem, along with some of the other people who we're going to be talking about in today's episode, as kind of a weird artifact of history, he's not just a weird artifact of history. He's someone who we can learn something from and apply it to the world today. And when I say learn something from, obviously not saying learning good things or that he's a guy that we should emulate. Um, anyways, I mean, you guys know that at Things Observed. This isn't really a show where we do too much talking about cool dudes, which we, we should start a series about cool guys being cool. Um, so I'll have to come up with with some show ideas about some stuff that's not uh, so black-pilled. But anyways, uh, that day is not today. So let's go ahead and talk about Yaroslav Stetsko. Um, he was a guy who would find among some of his acquaintances later in life, senators, congressmen, heads of state, and most of them think of him as a patriot, you know, battling the evils of communist totalitarianism, you know, some real PragerU type stuff. And, you know, he would do this after surviving Nazi concentration camps and so on and so forth. However, the true story is far less desirable. And so in his official biography, it says that he would fight against both the Soviets and the Nazis in his journey to assert Ukrainian independence. But we will go into in a little bit how he can even make the claim that he would fight against both the Soviets and the Nazis. But just hang with me. But, you know, the truth is that Stetsko was a Nazi collaborator. So after spending a couple of years in the pen for his role in the murder of Polish officials during his time as the leader of one of the branches of the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, he would be noticed by the Nazis and uh, he would be viewed as a potential asset, you know, because they had a similarity, these this organization of Ukrainian nationalists and the Nazis, they both held a disdain for Poles, Russians, Jews, leftist, you know, the, uh, the common scapegoat of these type of people. And while planning the invasion of Poland, the Nazis began to have plans for some of these Ukrainians, and they even contemplated establishing an independent Ukrainian government under the control of this organization of Ukrainian nationalists. And inside the organization of Ukrainian nationalists, which is quite a mouthful, two camps had formed. And after the leader of the group was assassinated via a bomb slipped into his coat by a Soviet agent, Gadim, um, one camp is what is referred to as inside the league as the cautious old guard, and the other camp were the more youthful radicals, and this latter one is where Stetsko 
was. And so the Nazis would remove Stetsko from jail and they would set about creating a new organization of Ukrainian nationalists, which would be led by Stefan Bandera. And so, you know, Stetsko would work at, you know, creating this new organization and Bandera would make Stetsko his second in command. And so now we kind of come to the time in history when the Nazis were planning the invasion of the Soviet Union, Operation Barbarossa, and they were hopeful that Stetsko would unite these two separate camps, you know, the old guard and the young guns, if you will. And so uh, the Nazis would support both, you know, kind of hedge their bets, if you will, because, hey, if you're betting on on all the horses in the race, one of them's going to win. And so while the Nazis continued toward their plans to invade the Soviet Union, the Ukrainians would be placed into regiments. And one of these was the Nightingales, which consisted mainly of followers of Bandera and Stetsko. And they would dress in Nazi warmocked uniforms, and they would, you know, serve as a what would you call them, a vanguard during the invasion of the Ukraine. And the organization of Ukrainian nationalists would even form a secret police which would target and kill communist Russians, Jews, and the leader of this group, would, of the secret police, would gain a reputation for his brutality and ruthlessness. And, you know, he would gain this reputation amongst a pretty brutal and ruthless bunch to begin with. So during Operation Barbarossa, he would he would proclaim himself after convening a small congress to be the head of the new Ukrainian state. And this proclamation would upset Germans and Stetsko, who presumably was trying to smooth over the situation with Germany, would say, you know, after he proclaimed, Stetsko that is, proclaimed himself to be the leader of this new Ukrainian state, he would say, the Ukrainian state will closely cooperate with National Socialist Germany, which under the leadership of Adolf Hitler will create a new order in Europe and throughout the world. The Ukrainian army will fight together with the Allied Germany army for the new order in the world. You know, so he got a little bit big for his britches, but he would try and smooth it over with his boy, old Adolf, in order to, uh, you know. All I gotta say is, young Dolph over old Dolph any day in the week. Um... So, the people of the Ukraine would soon learn firsthand of the brutality of the Nazis. And they would, you know, some of these people weren't happy with how things were. Um, and, you know, they would kind of support the organization of Ukrainian nationalists and this whole, you know, Stetsko Bandera operation. But many of them would soon learn. Uh, how this was probably not the greatest idea after the OUN, the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, were, you know, now occupying the region and committing all kinds of atrocity. So within days of Stetsko's arrival to, uh, I'm going to pronounce this totally wrong, I'm sorry folks, LVOV, who knows, but anyways, within days of Stetsko, I, one thing about doing the show is there are so many things that I read and there's only the way I pronounce it in my head. And since I don't respect these people, 
I don't try to I don't try to learn about it, but I should. I I'll make a vow that I'll start doing better. But anyways, within you know days, if not hours, of Stetsko's arrival, uh, Jews, communists, intellectuals, anyone to deemed as subversive to this new order which he was talking about would be murdered by nationalist Ukrainian and Nazis who were working in conjunction with one another. And so during Stetsko's time there, it was when he, he would come into control of the city and somewhere around 7,000 residents would be killed. And uh, inside the league says tens of thousands more were exterminated in the surrounding countryside by marauding OUN units. In the following four years, the entire Jewish population of Lvov, about 100,000 and more than a million Jews in greater Ukraine, would be annihilate, annihilated by the Nazis and their co-workers. The Ukrainian Auxiliary Police. Later, so, I mean... After this, Stetsko and Bandera, they would be put under honorary arrest, whatever the hell that means, and they would be taken to Sashkenhausen prison after refusing to renounce their claim of independence, all while the you know order organization of Ukrainian nationals was continuing to terrorize people at the behest of the Germans. You know, so we have this conflict between Germany, who kind of wants the, you know, uh, Ukraine to be more of a vassal for them, and the uh, Stetskos and Banderas, who are trying to install their own independent little fascist state. There's a little bit of a fascial, fascist squabble going about. So, one can, you know, wonder how bad... Uh, their prison experience was when one hears of the fact that, you know, during his supposed time in prison, Stetsko would meet in Poland with the chief field commander, Mykola Lebed. And so, once again, I'll read from Inside the League yet again. As the war turned against the Germans, they increasingly relied on their nationalist allies. By 1944, Ukrainian assistance was desperately needed to harass the advancing Soviets and to try and slow their advance. To this end, the Ukrainian insurgent army was formed, and Stetsko, Bandera, and other leaders were released from their confinement to quarters in Germany to lead the struggle. Toward the end of the war, when it was clear that the Thousand-Year Reich was finished, some Ukrainian elements also began sniping at the retreating Germans, this allowed Stetsko later to claim that the, uh, that the UPA fought the Nazis as well as the Soviets, an assertion that continues to serve him well. So there we go. That's how he was able to say that he fought, fought both Nazis and the Soviets and his kind of uh, not-so-bad time in prison when he was spending you know, time in uh, whatever the Eastern European equivalent is of like badminton racquetball prison is, um, you know, he would turn that into being in a concentration camp and fighting the Nazis. But after the war, he would spearhead the creation of the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations, and he would go on to work with the World Anti-Communist League and meet with many important movers and shakers on the global anti-communist fascist international stage, if you will. And he would even be received at the United States Capitol and White House later on in his life. This was in, uh, I believe, 1983. He would meet with 
who else but Ronald Reagan and Bush Sr., and he was received by them as the last premier of a free Ukrainian state. So, uh, I don't know. Make of that what you will, but it's all certainly interesting, especially when we talk about all this in conjunction with what's currently going on in the Ukraine and groups like the Atsov Battalion. And, you know, we know that there's these uh, Ukrainians who exist today who still have a bit of a Nazi problem, if you will. And so now let's go on to the last kind of Nazi dude who we're going to talk about um, before we get into some of the Asian fascists who are going to comprise you know, the other half, if you will, of the World Anti-Communist League. Um, and that is Stepan Heffer. And Heffer would not only be a member of the World Anti-Communist League, but he was also the leader of the Croatian Liberation Movement. But what is of primary interest to us was his large role in the Ustashi or the Ustasha Ustazi, it goes by a bunch of different names, but I think we will use Astasha because that's kind of the Anglicanized version, um, which for a simple white boy in the Midwest, such as myself, it suits my sensibilities. And Ustasha sounds, uh, it's a little bit easier to say, but I think you can also say like the, I think it's like actually pronounced the Ustazi or something like that, but who knows? I'm no linguist, especially when it comes to Croatian terms. But the Ostasha, this was a extreme nationalist movement that would commit many acts of terrorism and brutality. And they would rule over Croatia with who else's support but the Nazis. And so before his role in the WACL and as his role as the leader of the Croatian Liberation Movement, which we will refer to by its Croatian acronym HOP, as in IHOP without the I, but IHOP is much better than HOP. Not even that I'm a giant fan of IHOP, so hopefully no IHOP heads, uh, you know, want to want to create beef over me not being a giant IHOP fan. I'm personally preferential to Waffle House, but hey, to each their own uh, breakfast joint. But he would, uh, and that is Heifer, he would work underneath a man by the name of Anti Pavlek. And there are some similarities between the two, and this is recounted in the League. The two men had much in common. Both had been lawyers, both were middle-aged Roman Catholics, both had been members of Parliament, and both were officials of a terrorist group called Astasha, roughly translated to rise or to awaken. Both men participated in the genocide of their countrymen, and murders carried out with a sadism that would shock even their Nazi allies. Antapovalik, as Poglovnik, or Fuhrer of the nation of Croatia, and Stepan Heffer as Governor General of Baranja County, assured their places in history atop the mutilated bodies of nearly a million victims. After the war, the similarity of their lives would continue, for both would escape to Argentina and resurrect their movement in exile. Which, man, Argentina, that's where all the... That's where a lot of the bad hombres went. I wonder if they had big bad hombre shindigs in Argentina where they would regale each other with stories of the old fascist days and, you know, 
hang out in the uh, in the nice sun and sip on on girly mixed drinks with their pinkies up. But who's to say? So in the 1920s, uh, Yugoslavia consisted of six different republics, and it gets a little bit compu- com- complicated, but uh, we'll, we'll do our best to simplify it a little bit. Um, so there would be six different republics, and there, the, in the populace of these various countries, there consisted of more than a handful of ethnic groups and three separate religions. So we have you know, the Christians there, we have Muslims, and we have Jews. And so this would create a complex political and religious environment. And then what else would happen but a group of ultra-nationalistic Croatians, known as the Ostasha, would seek to uh, drive anyone out who was non-Catholic and not of Croatian descent from the country, whether that be by deportation or death. And so in order to accomplish this, and the Yugoslav state would need to be destroyed, and Pavlik, Auntie Pavlik, would take the Ustasha to training camps in Hungary and Italy, from which he would coordinate a campaign of terror in order to accomplish this end. And any time I think of Italy in a campaign of terror, I can't help but to think of, you know, some gladio-type stuff. But anyhow... In emulation of Hitler and Mussolini, he would adopt things such as the Roman salute and as well as, you know, black short, black short, black shirt uniforms of the Italian fascist whose supervision they were under at the time. Ma'am, if they had been wearing black shorts with their black shirts, they maybe would have looked a little bit cuter. Not much. They would still be morally reprehensible. But there would be some sort of humor to be found in them wearing short black booty shorts. But they were not. But it was also probably a little bit cold for that, I suppose, as well. But the people of Yugoslavia would begin to rebel after Hitler signed an accord with the Yugoslav government. And Hitler would say, as the invasion was underway, it is especially important that the blow against Yugoslavia be carried out with inexorable severity. And so, this is when the Ustasha would strike. So, alongside the German army, the Ustasha would descend upon the capital of Croatia and declare Pavlik the new leader. And with Italian rifles acquired from their time in fascist Italy, they would go about cleansing the country of all those that were not fit in their eyes. And it would be Heffer who would serve as the governor general of one of the country's counties where he would assert himself as a reliable asset for this new authoritarian regime. And so Ustasha terror squads, they would, you know, do all kinds of bad stuff like deliver Jews into the hands of the German SS as was official policy actually. And Serbs would be murdered in mass by the Ustasha. If there's one thing that you did not want to be, when you came into contact with the Ustasha, it was Serbian. And it was said by the authors of the League that to uh, they didn't kill with you know the methodical kind of inhuman precision of the Nazis, but rather that the Ustasha, 
they derived a perverse pleasure in the torture that they inflicted on their victims before killing them. And they would do just some of the most heinous stuff imaginable. They would drive Serbs into Orthodox churches and they would be, uh, these Serbians would be burned alive alongside, you know, icons of martyrs who suffered similar deaths to them most likely. Um, a lot of martyrs, you know, throughout time who were, who were burned. But anyways, Inside the League says, The massacres began in earnest at the end of June 1941, and Fitzroy McLean, the Brit Britain's military liaison to the anti-Ustasha partisans, would write, And they continued throughout the summer, growing in scope and intensity until in August the terror reached its height. The whole of Bosnia ran with blood. Bands of Ustaji roamed the countrysides with knives, bludgeons, and machine guns, slaughtering Serbian men, women, and little children, desecrating Serbian churches, murdering Serbian priests, laying waste Serbian villages, torturing, raping, burning, drowning, killing, became a cult obsession. And... I'll just tell you guys, if you really want to ruin your evening, you can find some pictures of the atrocities online because many members of the Ustasha would take pictures with their victims because they would have contests, essentially, to see who could kill the most in order to win Pavlek's favor, and they would snap some photographs for proof of these. So there is a disturbing amount of those pictures floating out around out there. And you can find them if you're so inclined, but I personally don't recommend it. But hey, just by me saying that, I probably shouldn't have even said that because now some of you sick puppies, your curiosity is going to make you see things that you shouldn't. And it's going to be deeply ingrained in your brain. But anyway, the absolute death and destruction they left behind... Uh, you know, made Catholic clergy and, and Nazis who had initially supported them condemn their sheer brutality. And you know it's pretty bad when the, some Nazis are like, dude. But I'm sure that there was also plenty of Nazis who thought uh, that it was cool. But anyways, the Nazis would actually go um, as far as to intervene and disband at least one Ustasha regiment and this was, you know, because of the atrocities that had been done and Italian troops stationed in the coastal areas that Mussolini had annexed. They would actually take Serbs and Jews and they would help to hide them. And they claimed that doing otherwise was incompatible with the honor of the Italian army, which I don't know, uh, they might have thought themselves to have a little bit more honor than they actually did. But nonetheless, that gives you an idea about how brutal some of this stuff going on was. So, Heffer would order the mass deportation of Serbs and Jews, some of whom would end up in concentration camps. And most of those who were, you know, taken to the camps were not seen or heard from again. And when the Soviets invaded in 1945, the government collapsed. And Heffer would join Pavlik in Austria. And what else would they do aside from do their best to keep the Ustasha alive in exile? Because it seems to me like when you have one of these fascist groups and shit hits the fan, 
I guess that's what you do is you keep things alive in exile. But these groups, whether it be the Ustasha, the Iron God, or the OUN, would not cease to exist after the fall of Nazi Germany. Not even Nazis would, you know, cease to exist after the fall of the Third Reich. I mean, you guys know of all the Werner von Braun's going out on, going, I can't speak. You guys know of all the Werner von Braun's of the world. I mean, it seems like in every episode we talk about some sort of paperclip scientist or something like that who factors into our story. I mean, with our previous episodes on Lyme's disease, we had Eric Traub, you know, the biological warfare scientist. I mean, this is just a thing that that is... Uh, really affected the course of history you know the fascists did not disappear after the war they uh were still around and about and you know their the the wake of their actions is still felt to this day and so you know some were brought to america by u.s intelligence others were given face fake passports by the vatican uh you name it so the same that can be said of the nazis can be said of the, you know, the Croatians, the Ukrainian, the Romanian fascists who would make their way to the U.S., South America, uh, Western Europe, Canada, and they kept on to their ideologies and they kept their prejudices alive and they would work through groups like the group that is the discussion of today's episode, the World Anti-Communist League, to keep their vision for the world alive and well. You know, the Iron Guard would abuse the church as a means of recruitment. Uh, members of the Bandera Stetsko forces would be recruited by the British and American captors to spy on the Soviet Union. And then with U.S. funds, American money, members of the OUN would create the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations with its chairman and organizer being who else but Stetsko himself and the group would end up establishing chapters in numerous places around the globe, which included many American cities with committee members such as high-level military officials. And there was even, uh, when I read about this, there was even a former Defense Intelligence Agency director. You know, uh, the, the Croatian fascist Pavlik would make his way to Argentina, where one can, you know, only wonder about who he was hanging out with. Uh, in, underneath the sun with their, you know, fruity little drinks. And, you know, then he would set up the Croatian Liberation Movement, which is kind of a funny name for a group that was based out of Buenos Aires. But anyways, I will, to summarize this segment that we just talked about before we go on into the Asian People's Anti-Communist League and some of the characters who came out of that, I will summarize it with a quote from the League. They are not the three bad apples of the League. They are in fact the company they are in fact in the company of many other war criminals, some of whom committed even worse crimes. With the creation of the World Anti-Communist League, there came into existence a worldwide network of fascism. Today, League conventions afford the opportunity for the old guard war criminals to meet with, advise, and support the new guard fascist. Thus today, a man like Chirila Siuntu, who helped slaughter communist Jews 45 years ago, can sit down in the same room with an Italian fascist who killed Reds 10 years ago, and with a Salvadoran who is killing subversives now. So as we can see, this is, you know, not uh, like there's one bad hombre in the bunch, 
but the bunch is a bunch of bad hombres. So now let's get into the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, and we're going to talk about a number of interesting characters, some of whom we have mentioned in past episodes, especially the Blood and Gold series on the, you know, Japanese looting of the Far East. I believe it was 12 different countries, if I remember correctly. They took a bunch of gold, and then eventually the CIA would come in possession of the Imperial Japanese gold after the end of World War II, and that would serve as the basis of a bunch of black budgets and what have you. And so we're going to run into some of those same characters today. So, enough with these European fascists, let's move on to uh, the Asian fascist, get a different variety, a different flavor of fascism, if you will, and to, this will help us get, you know, an idea of the other half of this nexus that would eventually give rise to the World Anti-Communist League, and then would go on to include members from, you know, South America as well, uh, from Mexico, from, you know, basically all over the globe. So on the Asian side of this nexus, we will cover in this episode, Chiang Kai-shek, Park Chung-hee, and then Ryoichi Sasakawa and Yoshio Kadama, and the Reverend Sun Young Moon. And so, I mean, we're going to be having some Mooney talk and then like characters like Sasakawa and Kodama. These are the guys who we covered to some extent in our series Blood and Gold, you know, about the Golden Lily stuff that I just now mentioned. And so let's just go ahead and dive into all of this stuff. So in 1966, the Asian People's Anti-Communist League or the APACL they would join with the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations in order to form the World Anti-Communist League. Although the APACL, they would still exist, but in a slightly more nominal capacity, if you will. And so the Asian People's Anti-Communist League, they formed in a 1954 in order to do exactly what you think they were formed to do. Put an end to the spread of communism in the continent of Asia. But what is interesting is that the organization was created by the exiled government of Chiang Kai-shek and Korean intelligence working in conjunction with one another. And it makes sense that the two would join forces considering that Taiwan is a small isolated island and Korea was dealt a heavy blow after the Korean War and the two were both searching for anti-communist allies and they would find a friend in each other. And so Chiang Kai-shek had been at war for over 20 years, and whether that be with the Imperial Japanese, uh, Mandarin warlords, communist under the leadership of Mao, he, we will, um, he would ultimately lose you know, the mainland during World War II, and after this, this is when Shek would place his cronies in Formosa, or what we call today Taiwan, and he would conquer the island through brutal means. And so while the corrupt and incompetent Kuomintang were not much of a match for Mao, uh, the Taiwanese were a different story. 
And so this would, when they, you know, came to Taiwan, result in waves of killing, which started with politicians, businessmen, intellectuals, kind of the upper class. And then it would be followed by, you know, young people who posed a threat to Sheck, uh, dissidents, all that stuff. And so the government in exile would, just in one wave of these killings in March of 1947, kill uh, an estimated 20,000 people. And that's just one wave of the killing. So that gives you an idea of the scope of things. So initially, Sheck and the Comintang were not looked upon favorably by the U.S., but that would all change with General MacArthur, another guy who we talked about in Golden Lily. We're going to see that there's actually a surprising amount of overlap in this second half of the episode with our Golden Lilies series. You know, so uh, check out Gold Warriors to learn more about that if you want the book, or you can listen to my three-part series on the matter. But it wouldn't be long, you know, before America's attitude to the Comintang change, and they would be seen as an asset, uh, especially considering that they had a dream of returning to the mainland which seemed strategically valuable to America because they were concerned with Mao and the communists in the region. So they would much prefer Sheck to be there. So what happens but economic aid and weapons begin to flow into the island at an impressive rate because what do we do with lunatics who could possibly serve our strategic purposes in America? We give them a bunch of money and guns and say, let's see how this shit works out. And newsflash normally doesn't work out. But hey, I'm not going to get on a tangent lest I digress. I don't like when people say that. Um, but anyhow, something that I feel is rarely discussed is the fact that the Comintang government was a narco state. And it was brought to power largely by the Green Gang. And so the Green Gang was a came out of a secret society that was in the tradition of the folk religion Luoism, which is a Buddhist religious outlook on the world, which followed the beliefs of this mystic Luo Mingong. Um, and the group would gain power through boatmen who were trading grain. And, you know, this is kind of how they would start to make some money, but they would eventually be driven underground by authorities. And this is when they started getting into the smuggling game. And they would be a powerful group in the criminal underworld as a result of getting into smuggling. So, you know, it kind of comes out of this uh, mystical Buddhist secret society. But eventually, the Green Gang gets into the drug trade. And Sheck was not himself a, min um, a member of the Green Gang, but his mentor was an... Once again, I, I know I'm going to be butchering this, but Chien Chi Mi, um, and he was a member of the Green Gang, and the Comintang would sue the, uh, would use the group to do all kinds of bad things, you know, suppress leftists and trade unions. I mean, this, I mean, suppressing leftists and trade unions, that seems kind of like the go to for when a right-wing government starts getting involved 
with a criminal criminal syndicate of some source. It's a story as old as right-wing government and gangs. But uh, Whitney Webb would write in her book, One Nation Under Blackmail, Volume 1, the Green Gang finances activities through the cultivation and sale of opium, an activity that was fully sanctioned by Chiang and the KMT. Prior to the Kuomintang's rise to power, Chinese opium produced production was unorganized and distributed among many different warring figures. Under Chiang, however, a suppression was carried out with the ostensible goal of wiping out the opium trade in the name of public health. Behind the scenes, however, the KMT was doing quite the opposite. The suppression of opium production was actually an integrated effort to centralize it, placing production distribution, and ultimately control of the substance in the hands of a joint KMT green gang monopoly. And so, you know, we're going to go a little bit more into Komantong drug dealing and, uh, you know, being a narco state, but just kind of as a preface, we will see, especially with the Asian part of the uh, World Anti-Communist League, that the drug trade ends up being a big factor in it, and that will eventually play a bigger role in the World Anti-Communist League than is even mentioned in Inside the League. And also a good place to learn about this is the series of blog posts that I'm going to link in the show notes by Recluse, which is really good, and it goes over some stuff that I don't go over in this episode. And so I think that the two complement each other well. But anyhow, so the West, through people such as the Rockefellers, they would help them secure their opium monopoly, that is Chiang Kai-shek and, you know, the Komintang. And they would largely do this through the China Medical Board and later the League of Nations through their advisory committee on the traffic of opium and other dangerous drugs, which would work, you know, closely with the Rockefeller Foundation's International Health Board. And so the Komintang would oblige to the regulations set forth by the League, and this would basically help them with the, uh, you know, get a monopoly on both the legal and the illegal trade of the deadly substance. So... In Opium and the Politics of Gangsterism by the author Jonathan Marshall, which, hey, that's a pretty good name. Um, I go by my middle name for those of you who don't know, but I am not that Jonathan Marshall. He's probably way more intelligent than I am. But he writes... In the central provinces of China, especially in Hubei and Hunan, nearly every government organization has come to depend on opium revenue for maintenance, observed one expert. Even laws, law courts, Komintag organizations, and schools are no exception. Thus, in one locality, authorities charged one pickle of opium $320 for general taxes, 32 for communist suppression, and $3.20 for national revenue, $1.50 for the Chamber of Commerce, $2.50 for special goods, opium, and association fees, and $2.50 for the Hishun Girls School, and $7 for protection fees. Later, highway maintenance and more school taxes were added. When the opium finally reached Hankou, monopoly authorities added in another 
$920 tax. The original cost of the opium was only $400. And so just there alone, you can kind of see how integral it was to the economy of the country. And it wouldn't just be, you know, uh, Chiang Kai-shek who would get, you know, in bed with the Green Gang and, you know, turn China into a narco state. But other people would see, uh, you know, their eyes would turn into like cartoon money eyes with dollar bills instead of pupils. And you'd have infamous American organized, organized crime figures involved with the National Crime Syndicate consisting primarily of the Italian and Jewish mob who would get in on the action. One of these men was the mentor of Mayor Lansky, Lucky Luciano, and Frank Costello, who are all three pretty big names when it comes to the National Crime Syndicate. And that man who was their mentor was Arnold Rothstein. So Rothstein would get in on the action. And Whitney Webb points out that people such as the author of History of the Opium Problem, The Assault on East the assault on the East, 1600 to 1950, believed that the Comintang Green Gang connection to American organized crime existed with the support of Anglo-American economic ex- establishment. Which, man, I'm just like talking like I'm a- about to have a seizure and seize up. But let's hope that's not the case. So when the communists drove the Kuomintang out of the mainland into Taiwan, as discussed earlier, the CIA would bring together an army in Burma to stage an invasion of China. And Whitney Webb would also quote in her book, Alfred McCoy's book, The Politics of Heroin, which I haven't read in total, but I have read parts of, and I need to read that book in total. And Alfred McCoy's a cool guy. But anyhow, um, I will read from this Although the KMT was to fail in its military operations, it succeeded in monopolizing and expanding the opium trade. The KMT shipped the opium harvest to northern Thailand, where they were sold to General Fao Sayanin of the Thai police, a CIA client. The CIA had promoted the Fao-KMT partnership to secure a rear area for the KMT, but this alliance soon became a critical factor in the growth of Southeast Asia's narcotics traffic. With CIA support, the KMT remained in Burma until 1961 when a Burmese army offensive drove them into Laos and Thailand. By this time, however, the Kuomintang had already used their control over their tribal populations to expand the Shan state opium production by almost 500%, from less than 80 tons after World War II to an estimated 300 to 400 tons by 1962. So, you know, we have the Kuomintang, who is, you know, a a narco-state, really. And, you know, the CIA would have an initiative to support the Kuomintang through Burma and Thailand, and this was called Operation Paper. And according to Webb, one of the architects of this operation was the former OSS man and a possible, if not likely, CIA operative, Willis Byrd, who was had the nickname of Mr. Opium, which is quite the nickname. And he would help supply the Thai military and police with materials, which came through a company called Southeast Asia Supply, or SEA. So we have Byrd, and now he's using... SEA in order to get supplies to the Thai military and police. And this is going to get a little bit complicated, so 
hopefully I do a good job in breaking it down. You can follow. So we have Byrd. Then we have the SEA who's working at the behest of the CIA to get this high military and police materials. And Byrd worked for and he Bird worked for the SEA as the Bangkok office manager underneath another OSS man named Sherman Juiced. And so the company, interestingly enough, was set up by the lawyer and OSS man Paul Hellowheel, whom we very briefly mentioned once again in our series on the Golden Lily operations. So we keep seeing this whole nexus of, you know, fascist in the Far East and CIA guys who are working in conjunction with one another, and they appear both in our series on the Golden Lily, they appear in Gold Warriors, which we talked about in the Blood and Gold series, and then they also are appearing once again in our series on the World Anti-Communist League in relations to people like the Comintang and stuff like that. And so SEA worked closely with Civil Air Transport, which... Once again, this is another group who we've already mentioned before. We mentioned them in our second part of our episode on Lyme's disease, you know, in relation to the box of ticks that the CIA, uh, anonymous CIA officer said, you know, he dropped a box of ticks over Cuba. And we talked a little bit about some of the CIA plans for biological warfare and how a lot of this was probably directed at Cuba. But anyway, we talked about civil air transport in that story. They were the ones, you know, who were flying the plane. But many of you will also know of civil air transport, um, you know, just because they're one of these groups that appears time and time again, especially when we talk about, you know, possible drug trafficking and stuff like that. And civil air transport was brought into the world of special operations by the guy we just mentioned, Paul Hellowheel. And so CAT came out of the Flying Tigers during the Second World War, which would provide support for the Kuomintang when they were battling it out with the Chinese. And I was just actually uh, looking at Twitter not too long ago when I would see Jimmy Fallon Gong, who... um, you know, go check out our episode on Program to Chill. Super cool guy. Just check out Program to Chill in general. But he put a post that he figured out that the Flying Tigers logo was actually designed by none other than Disney, which is pretty comical. But anyways, the Flying Tigers was organized by Claire Chenault, who would also serve as a military advisor to who else but Chiang Kai-shek and his brother-in-law. Um... And so, I mean, we just see all these different connections, and there's even more about this in One Nation Under Blackmail and in other stuff by people like Alfred McCoy and also by Peter Del Scott, another great um, historian and stuff like that. So that information is out there, but I could go on all day about, you know, Comintang being a narco state and all their funny business and, you know, go further into their relationships to people in the National Crime Syndicate and how they use Mexico as a shipment point for opium. But, you know, just check out some of the uh, resources which I have mentioned and also the blog post which I've mentioned by Recluse they mentioned some things in relation to KMT drug trafficking that I do not cover here um and he quotes um uh Peter Del Scott I think it was um 
which there's a pretty quotation from him in there. But anyways, I could go on and on and on about that. But then it would just have to be an episode of that in and of itself. So anyway, so now let's turn our attention to Park Chung-hee. And so after the Korean War, the country was not left in the most enviable position, to say the least. The country was divided in two, with the southern southern half being controlled by the Syngman Rhee, uh, which was a far-right puppet uh, who, you know, he hadn't even lived in Korea for over 30 years, you know, I mean, just kind of a, a joke, uh, uh, Korean Zelensky or whatever. And in the north, they it was in control by the Soviets, you know, so we have this country that is divided, um, and people would be placed throughout the new South Korean government who had actually fought on the side of the Japanese during the war. And, you know, this was obviously because they had strong anti-communist bona fides, um, which, man, I used to say bona fides before. Um, I feel like a lot of people say bona fides, but I guess it's bona fides, which makes it less fun to say. But Park Chung-hee was one of these men who, uh, he would take the Asian People Anti-Communist League and he would make it an important element of South Korean policy. Uh, he would receive his education in the Mantuko Military Academy in occupied Manchuria. And this is before he would go on to fight alongside the Chinese. But ever the opportunist, he would become a high-level member in the South Korean Communist Party, which are like, hey, high member level in the South Korean Communist Party, what's he doing in the World Anti-Communist League? Well, he would make a radical 180 after he was facing death when he was imprisoned, you know, because he was in far-right South Korea. And what would he do? Well, he would squeal on all of his previous comrades, and as often as the case, his snitching would have dire consequences and hundreds of army officials and people he had once considered to be comrades, um, you know, they would be killed. All this, you know, leading up to the coup. So Park's treason would put him in the position to lead a coup 13 years later, and it would basically end up in a military revolutionary committee being formed and they would dissolve the National Assembly, all the schools, no, you know, newspapers be shut down. Essentially martial law. Um, yeah, I mean, it was martial law. And before the year came to an end, they created the Korean Central Intelligence Agency. And inside the league says... When the Asian People's Anti-Communist League was formed in 1954, Taiwan and South Korea had much in common. Korea had lost half its territory, the most economically advanced part, to the communist, while Chiang's nationalists had been over 99% of their sleep away. Both were in the front lines of the Cold War and completely exposed to their enemies. The Korean capital was 20 miles away from the armies of North Korea, and Taiwan was 90 miles across the China Sea from the colossus of communist China. Both harbored dreams of reunification through the defeat of communism. Both were ruled by military dictatorships that kept order through perpetual martial law, and both were indebted to the United States for their survival and prosperity. So... Now we have power in the Asian People's League. Um, 
it had always resided in Taiwan and South Korea, but you know many other countries, predominantly ones who were beholden to Western interests, would begin to become members of the league. And it was largely the intelligence agencies of these two countries, you know Taiwan and uh, you know under Chiang and Kai-shek and the Korean and Central Intelligence Agency, that would assist in the formation and furthering of the league. And so now let's move on to our next character. And this is one of the guys who we discussed in Blood and Gold. And we talked about him more than any of the other people who appear, you know, in our Blood and Gold series. And that's Yoshio Kodama. And inside the league, they begin Kodama's story on a hilltop in Japan that's overlooking Tokyo Bay. And 13 members of this far-right group, the uh, which I can't even pronounce the you know Japanese pronunciation of it, but in English it translates to the Association for the Reverence of the Emperor and the Expulsion of the Barbarians. 13 members of this group would meet on this hilltop overlook, overlooking Tokyo Bay, would meet to commit ritual suicide. However, only one of these men would descend from that hill. And that man was Yoshio Kodama. And so Kodama was a rich man due to the patronage of Ryochi Sasakawa. And he was a man who said, I am the world's wealthiest fascist, which that is quite the claim. But he was very wealthy and he was a fascist. So who's to say? But it wasn't only the patronage of Sasakawa that was responsible for his wealth, but as we covered in part of our series on Golden Lily Operation, he also made a handsome profit in the drug trade. And Inside the League's a really great book. I highly recommend it for all of those, uh, all of you who want to learn more about this subject. But what I will say about Inside the League is that it does not really go into the drug trafficking aspect of a lot of the WACL members a lot and so it's really helpful when you can learn about these people in a host of other good books by you know a host of other very good authors and so you know Kodama hadn't you know before getting into the drug trade and getting uh, patronage from Sasakawa he hadn't always known the kind of fortune that he would eventually acquire in fact he had been born an orphan, and it would be a, a not good life of, you know, no parents working in the sweatshops. But that's all before he became Yakuza, which um, he sit, seemed to fit in well with the gang life, if you will. The Yakuza was financed by the Japanese far-right and industrialist, and they would, you know, once again... What did I say just a little bit ago that it seems like, you know, right-wing government in conjunction with organized crime always seems to do, but disrupt trade unions, and they would even assassinate members of the rights opposition, the Yakuza would. And so Kadama would eventually spend some jail time after he wrote a letter threatening the life of a former Japanese finance minister. And he would send along with this letter a dagger. And basically the, the note says something like that he could be killed. He could use the dagger to defend himself. He can commit ritual suicide. But, you know, basically figure out what you're going to do with this damn thing. Because the time is going to come before long. 
but he would be released but um but he would be arrested i meant but the day that he was released the minister would end up being assassinated so i guess uh someone who was associated with kodama if not kodama himself saw through with that promise but both kodama and sasakawa would spend time in a prison cell Sasakawa would be imprisoned after an assassination assassination plot concerning a former premier. Keep talking like Sean Connery, talking about assassination. But uh, Sasakawa was born the son of a sake, sake brewer, and he would become a millionaire very early in life. He would be gambling on rice futures, and it ended up paying off for him big time. And then he would go on to form the ultra-nationalist militarist group, uh, the Kakusui Taishuto, probably not pronouncing that right, but the U.S. Army Counterintelligence Corps would describe Sasakawa in a report concerning World War II as one of the most active fascist organizers prior to the World War. And so when fascism began, you know, to increase, especially what the fascist fervor began to increase with the war in Manchuria. The fortune of these two uh, dudes would change, and they would be released from the pin in order to help further their fascist cause. And Kadama would conduct intelligence operations in China, and Sasakawa would res- resurrect the Kakusi Tashitu, um, whose members began to, you know, as as fascists do, you know, in the fashion of the day, the fascist fashion of the day, the fascist fashion of the day, uh, black shirts. And Sasakawa would, after meeting with Mussolini, <laughs> Mussolini would describe him as the perfect fascist, which um, I'm sure if you, you know, are a fascist would be a re- really meaningful compliment. So that's kind of a, a sweet, cute little fascist moment. And Kadama would eventually seize material and sell it back to the government at artificially high prices when he was tasked with keeping the Japanese Navy supplied with materials. Uh, Sasakawa would actually attain a position in Japanese parliament in 1942. So they're on the up and up, if you will, after getting released from the pen. And they were, you know, released by American intelligence forces. Like Yoshio Kadama, he was actually released under, uh, a, you know, he was arrested as a war criminal, but American military intelligence under Charles A. Willoughby would have all charges against him dropped. And this was, you know, obviously on the condition that he do what else but fight communism in Asia. And so uh, Willoughby is another one of those guys who we mentioned in, you know, the Golden Lily series. And speaking of Golden Lily, um, just to go more into Gadama, he would use, you know, his CIA connections to funnel money to right-wing politicians in Japan. And he would do, you know, as formerly mentioned, disrupt labor unions and all that. And he would go on in the future to support two political parties that made up the Japanese far right, which eventually would merge and become the Liberal Democratic Party. And don't let the name fool you. They're not very democratic and they aren't as liberal as you would maybe think, especially at that time in history. And Sasakawa was another one of these people who would heavily fund the Liberal Democratic Party. And so, in Gold Warriors, um, by Sterling and Peggy Seagrave, 
incredibly highly recommended. But anyways, the book says, Another great fortune discovered by U.S. intelligence services in 1946 was $13 billion in war loot amassed by underworld godfather Kodama Yoshio, who, as a rear admiral in the Imperial Navy working with Golden Lily in China and Southeast Asia, was in charge of plundering the Asian underworld and racketeers. He was also in charge of Japan's wartime drug trade throughout Asia. After the war, to get out of Shugamo prison and avoid prosecution for war crimes, Kodama gave $100 million to the CIA, which was added to the M Fund's coffers. The M Fund is one of these uh, black budget funds that comes from the Golden Lily operation. But anyhow, Kodama then personally financed the creation of two political parties that merged into Japan's ruling Liberal Democratic Party, strongly backed to this day by Washington. And Kodama would actually fund what was known as the Cannon Agency, which was named after the U.S. Army Colonel Jack Cannon. And this was according to the Seagraves, Willoughby's dirtiest operation. And it was effectively a death squad. And Jack Cannon arranged the bodily harm and murder of labor union organizers, socialists, student leaders, all other kinds of leftists. And Cannon was thought to have been behind the assassination of the left-wing writer Kaji Wataru, as well as the torture and dismemberment of the president of Japan's National Railroads, um, who he was found, you know, hacked to pieces, you know, just chunks alongside railroad tracks, real lovely stuff. And Cannon would actually call on the Yakuza when the Yakuza was in need, you know, so we see that kind of connection through Kodama. And, you know, as as mentioned, you know, Sasakawa would also heavily fund the right-wing Liberal Democratic Parmary, uh, Party. He was one of the primary financial backers, and he would also maintain at the same time communication with the underground world of, you know, the far right through one group, the National Council of Patriotic Organizations, which had right-wing terrorists convicted of assassinations of prime ministers and Yakuza members as the, you know, members on its board. So, I mean, terrorists and Yakuza bosses on the on the board of that group. But also another thing that's interesting about Sasakawa that I found while doing this research is uh, Robert Maxwell's Pergamon Press uh, published a book that is, you know, talking about him as basically a a freedom fighter and a philanthropist and, you know, just this awesome guy. And Ryochi Sasakawa would actually get into business with Robert Maxwell. I can't remember the exact specifics, but it is something like Robert Maxwell owned this team and Sasakawa would bail him out. I'll actually just pause it real quick and I'll figure out what exactly it is that was going on there. All right, so what it had to do with was the Commonwealth Games, which is, you know, they just take people throughout the Commonwealth and have, you know, like track and field and all, you know, kind of like almost like an Olympics kind of thing. But in 1986, a boycott of 32 African and Caribbean and Asian nations would, you know, 
kind of protest over the issue of apartheid in South Africa. And so it was looking like the games weren't going to be able to happen. But then Robert Maxwell said that he could make the games happen. And he would not really put any of his own money, but he would call upon friends of his, such as Ryochi Sasakawa, um, in order to help bankroll the game. So that way that the games could continue. And so uh, Sasakawa and Maxwell were friends. They, you know, Sasakawa would help out Maxwell in that dealing in order to make the Commonwealth Games happen, you know. And, I mean, I'm sure the two of them had no problem with uh, making the games happen, even though they didn't want to, uh, other nations didn't want to support apartheid and, and whatnot. But, hey, you know, that's not really that unbelievable, considering the character of those two people. And, you know, obviously Robert Maxwell, father of Ghislaine Maxwell, he was a spy for the Mossad just you know like undoubtedly that's that's just is what it is but anyways uh interesting stuff that we got going on there and then you know maxwell would use his publishing company pergamon press in order to publish a you know book glorifying sasakawa but now let's discuss the last person who we are going to discuss today and that's sun young moon or you know the moonies he said that he was visited by jesus christ when he was 16 years old which i don't know maybe make the sign of the cross and 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 if you think you see jesus maybe make the sign of the cross or uh you know i, I don't know test the test the spirit before you just go believe in things just in in general if something approaches you as a being of light just test it you can't just go believing every vision that you have you know you need to have a little bit of spiritual awareness but hey we're here to talk about parapolitics not religion and theology which you guys probably don't want to hear me talk about but anyhow uh you know so he said that he would see jesus uh moon did and that Jesus told him that you are the son I have been seeking, the one who can begin my eternal history. And so then Moon would go on to establish the Unification Church, who they have a strange theology. It's like a mixture of some Christian stuff, some Confucianism, with a big dose of anti-communism to, you know, uh, really seal their, you know, little uh, medley of influences together. And part of their philo oh, man, part of their theology is that Christ failed to create a political kingdom on earth. And so this is what, you know, Moon set out to do. And he was born in what is today North Korea. And then when the communists came into power, he would be arrested two separate times, which he would frame as, you know, persecution, being the religious man that he was. But according to some, this wasn't as much a persecution uh, thing as it had to do with his orgiastic practices <laughs> and then it was uh when the un you know came in during the korean war that he would be freed and he would make his way down to south korea and this is when he would start the unification church or you know uh what members in america are referred to as as moonies you know so here we got the moonie connection going and so something of note is that the unification church is uh close relationship with the KCIA 
and you know we just mentioned them not too long ago and when expanding influence of the church into america it would be the kcia agent bohi pak who would receive this task to you know expand their influence and pak would after returning from the u.s create the korean cultural and freedom foundation which would include some pretty incredible members like former presidents eisenhower and truman and uh nixon was an honorary member so you know pock had uh done a good job and uh you know he would line up all kinds of prominent americans for his causes and so on and so forth and you know i could go on to say um, a lot more about uh, Moon, but I'll actually just, in the interest of time, I will refer you to the Subliminal Jihad. I believe it's two-part episode. If I remember, I will put it in the show notes. If not, it's not too old of an episode. Just, you know, look up Subliminal Jihad and find their series on the Moonies. You can learn a mo- lot more there and go into more depth through that but it's worth mentioning that he was you know kind of in the asian part of this nexus of the world anti-communist league and now to sum up the episode i will do one last reading from the league which i think puts a nice little bow on everything that we just discussed and then um in the future if i can line up a guest to come and talk about it That'll be cool. If not, I'll just do an episode kind of wrapping up some of the the stuff concerning the World Anti-Communist League. But anyhow, the quote from Inside the League is, Neither Moon nor Sasakawa was content merely to promote a church. However, in keeping with Sasakawa's lifetime involvement in ultra-nationalist activities and Moon's holy quest to establish a physical mission on Earth, it was necessary to establish a political arm, or even better, to take over an existing one, like the World Anti-Communist League. In July 1967, Sasakawa arranged a secret cabal at a building he owned on a lake in Yamanasi Prefecture. Among those attending were Reverend Moon, Shirai Tameo, and Osami Kaboki. Tameo was an underworld lieutenant of Yoshio Kendama and secretary of the innocuously named Japan Youth Lectures, a Kodama organization that indoctrinated and trained young members of the Yakuza gangs. Kaboki was the secretary general of Japan's Jinri Undo. He also served as an advisor and lecturer to Kodama's youth lectures. The purpose of the meeting was to create in Japan a Korean-style anti-communist movement that could, that could operate under the umbrella of the World Anti-Communist League and that would further Moon's global crusade and lend the Japanese Yakuza leaders a respectable new facade. Shikayu Ringu, or Victory Over Communism, was born. Ryochi Sasakawa was made overall chairman of Shikayu Ringu and Yoshio Kadama its chief advisor. In April 1968, Shokyu Ringu was chosen as the official Japanese chapter of the League, while theoretically unaffiliated with the Unification Church. Virtually its entire membership came from Muni ranks or the Yakuza minions of Kodama and Sasakawa. And so, there we have it. That kind of does a little bit to elaborate on the Mooney angle to the World Anti-Communist League story that we are talking about in today's 
episode. And, you know, it is from these two groups that we cover, the anti-Bolshevik bloc of nations and the Asian people's anti-communist um, organization that, you know, the World Anti-Communist League would draw its ranks from, as well as a host of other, you know, war criminals and fascists and, you know, leaders of death squad, death squads in South America. Uh, there's Mexican neo-Nazis who were involved. I mean, just a whole crazy host of characters. And to kind of refer back to Inside the League, it wasn't just one bad apple. It was a bunch of bad apples but essentially i think that that is a good way to set up talking about the world anti-communist league kind of some of the original participants some of the main shakers and producers who are kind of indicative of the type of person you're going to get with the whole lot of them and so that is our first episode on the world anti-communist league i will talk to you guys soon if you guys want to talk to me if you want to share your opinions or suggest a future episode you can find me on twitter my dms are open to everybody at thing observer if you like today's episode i would just encourage you to leave a review i appreciate that it helps more people to see the show and it gives us a little bit of credibility amongst people and if there's one thing that this show could use it's some credibility because we ain't got none folks so all observer nation i am calling upon you if you like this episode share it with a friend or share whatever your favorite episode is with a friend and as always take care i love you all and i'll talk with you all soon